We had a great day yesterday uh, at the Walk for Life in support of Life Network. And our goal as a church was to raise $7,000 for them. We praise God. We exceeded that goal and uh, raised $10,000, over $10,000 for Walk for Life. So thank you for your faithful giving and participation in that. We love the ministry there of Life Network and the great work that they do in the cause of life. Well, you can take your Bibles and turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, as we've seen, is writing to Christians who are beginning to experience what it means to suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. Christians of the first century were not going to win any popularity contests. Christians, as they were faithful to follow Jesus Christ, were often misunderstood, maligned, they were mistreated and marginalized and made fun of, and even sometimes put to death for following Jesus Christ. One biblical scholar describes the unbeliever's view of the Christian in this way. Pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theater, with its risque performances, the chariot races, and the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. Christian lifestyles also condemned the pleasures of an indulgent temper, sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. These, combined with the Christian's refusal to burn incense to the emperor, a gesture of civic gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the empire, earned Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. Christians found themselves on the outs with popular culture. Paul Kingsnorth writing recently in the First Things publication, summed up his own view of the Christian religion, his own view before he himself became a Christian. This is how he viewed the Christian religion. He said it was irrelevant. It was authoritarian. It was superstitious. It was feeble proto-science. It was the theft of our precious free will by authorities who wanted to control us by telling us fairy tales. It repressed women, gay people, atheists, anyone who disobeyed its irrational edicts. It hated science. It denied reason. It burned witches and heretics by the millions. Post-enlightenment liberal societies had thrown off religion's shackles and it was dying a much-needed death at the hands of progress and reason. This is how much of the world and much of our own culture views Christianity, views Christians. 
Increasingly, the culture around us thinks that we are backward, that we are ignorant, that we are prejudiced, that we are haters. So how are we to live as Christians in this kind of a situation where the culture around us is increasingly hostile to our beliefs, to our practices, and to us as followers of Christ? Well, Peter in our text this morning points us in the right direction, points us to the truth. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, let me read for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter continues this letter and he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we have read Your Word once again, and we want to understand it. We want to believe it. We want to live it. So help us to understand it rightly today, that we might live it faithfully. Lord, we thank You for giving us guidance about how we ought to live as Christians in a Christless world. We recognize that the world around us is is lost and in darkness. The world around us doesn't understand why we believe what we believe or why we do what we do or why we choose to live the way we live. Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses testifying of the grace of God that has changed our lives and given us a new purpose, a new meaning, a new way of life. Make us that people, Lord, we pray faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the darkness. Help us to shine brightly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter shares with us here four keys to Christ-like living in a Christless culture. That's what we're going to see this morning. Four keys to living Christ-like lives in a Christless culture. And the first key that Peter shares is that we as Christians... Living in a Christ-like culture need to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. We need to be willing willing to suffer rather than sin. Verse 1 begins with a therefore. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. And that takes us back to chapter 3 and verse 18. So chapter 4 and verse 1 is linked to what has gone before it, and and it's linked specifically to what Peter introduced to us in 1 Peter 3.18. Look with me there. For Christ also died or suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered and died for us, and his suffering and death was the pathway for his glorification and vindication. As verse 22 makes clear, chapter 3 and verse 22, look with me there. Jesus is now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. For Jesus, the cross of suffering had to be born before the crown of glory and vindication could be worn. Jesus had to suffer before he was vindicated through his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father where all authorities and evil spirits were put in subjection to him. In a similar way, Peter says here that the Christian suffering for Jesus' sake is necessary and it will eventually result in their own glorification and vindication. Peter says in verse 1 that since Christ has suffered in the flesh, suffered in the flesh there means during his earthly life. Peter's not using the word flesh here in this passage to refer to our sinful fallen humanness that indwelling sin that we still struggle with and fight against, that's not how he means flesh here. When he says in the days of his flesh, he means the time of his life here on the earth. As when he talks about our flesh, the days of our flesh, he's talking about the time of our life here on the earth. So during this time of our life on the earth, the believer, Peter says, is to arm himself or herself with this same purpose. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, verse 1. He's using battle language here. To arm yourself. Take up arms. It's the language of war. It's taking up arms in readiness for the conflict that is to come. Thomas Schreiner says this. He says the the martial language, the wartime language, indicates that discipline and grit are needed to live the Christian life, particularly in view of the suffering believers will encounter. And what are we to arm ourselves with? The same purpose or intention that Christ had. And what was this purpose or intention that Christ had? It is the deliberate purpose or intention to suffer for the sake of doing the right thing. And that's been a theme that Peter's been working with us on, hasn't it? That, that even if we suffer for doing good, know that we are blessed, Peter said. Sometimes we're going to do the right thing and we're going to suffer for it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus always did the right thing and yet he suffered for doing the right thing. And we need to arm ourselves with the same purpose and intention that Christ had, a willingness to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of fulfilling God's will and God's purpose. Like soldiers preparing for battle, Shriner says, believers should prepare themselves for suffering. We need to prepare ourselves to suffer for Jesus' sake, to suffer for living for Christ, to suffer for doing the right thing. And that's not new in this epistle. 1 Peter 2.21 says, You've been called for this purpose, Christian, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of how to follow in his steps. 
1 Peter 2.21. And again, that goes back to the words of Jesus in John 15.20 when he said, Remember what I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The reason we're to arm ourselves with the intention of suffering for Jesus' sake is listed at the end because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does Peter mean there? The one who has suffered for the sake of Christ has shown that he has broken his relationship to sin, his former relationship to sin. He's broken with sin. Sin is no longer his master. Sin is no longer his ruler. He has a new master. We as Christians have a new master in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. We follow his marching orders, not the marching orders of our flesh, not the marching orders of our lusts, as we'll see. And the one who is willing to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus demonstrates that they have broken that obedience to the flesh, broken that obedience to self-fulfillment and self-service. person who's willing to count the cost and follow Jesus to experience real suffering as a result of following Jesus demonstrates a zeal and a seriousness about their walk with Christ that will translate into a similarly serious attitude towards sin. This doesn't mean that the Christian will achieve some kind of sinless perfection. No, the Christian will continue to struggle and fight against sin, will continue to repent of their sin, But it does mean that they will take their battle against sin seriously, just as seriously as they take their decision to suffer for Jesus' sake. See, this is what it all boils down to. Christians will at times, living in a fallen world, face the temptation to partake in sin in order to fit into society around them rather than to suffer ridicule and rejection. Christians may be tempted at times to take a position that is popular in society, but that is clearly out of bounds in the Scripture. But you see, the Christian who has made the decision, who has armed themselves with the same purpose and intention to suffer for Jesus' sake, will demonstrate a decisive break with compromise and sin in the choices they make even when those choices result in insults and rejection and other forms of persecution. The Christian must be willing to suffer rather than to sin. And see, the Christian shows themselves willing to exercise self-denial. We, we have to, as Christians, we're called to exercise self-denial, right? Take up your cross and follow me. Die to self Die daily. What does that mean? It means that we set aside our lustful desires. We set aside our desires that we might otherwise pursue. Why? Because we have a greater desire, and that is to follow Jesus. We have a greater commitment, not to satisfy ourselves, but to be pleasing to the Lord. And so we exercise self-denial. Self-denial that results at times in suffering. Because it puts us at odds with the culture around us. As we'll see. 
All right? So the first key is that we need to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. We need to arm ourselves with the same purpose and intention of Jesus, and that is a willingness to obey even when it means suffering for doing the right thing. All right, second key. Live for God's will and not for human lusts. We need to live for God's will and not for human lusts. Verses 2 and 3. So, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. As a result of arming ourselves with the same purpose and intention as Jesus, being willing to endure suffering for the sake of following God and doing the right thing, we will have made an intentional break with sin, which will translate into a life of seeking to live for God's will and not for the fulfillment of our own human lusts. That used to characterize us. That was our former life. Before we came to Christ, we would seek to fulfill our lusts, our human desires, however sinful they might be. That used to characterize our lives. We were enslaved to sin. And Peter says here, we've already wasted enough time of our lives doing that. Verse 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. That was then, this is now. These sinful desires, these desires of the Gentiles, the, the, the unbeliever's way of life, that's what used to characterize our former life. But not anymore. We pursued various vices. And here's a vice list that he gives us, one of these lists of sins in the New Testament that we're given. Here it is, look what it says. Having pursued a course of sensuality, sensuality. What is that? It's, it's just debauchery. It's, it's a life of, of, of being led around by your desires. Probably a general word for sin here. Lust is the next one. We tend to think of lust related to sexual sin, and it often is, but probably here it's used more generally of a sinful desire of any kind, of any sort. Drunkenness comes next. We know the Bible doesn't forbid drinking alcohol, but it clearly forbids drunkenness. We're not to be controlled by alcohol. Rather, we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we're not to partake in anything that causes us to lose control of our wills. Carousing is next. This refers to parties, gatherings where sexual immorality was common, often associated with drinking and drunkenness. Drinking parties is next. Festal celebrations which involved, again, drunkenness and other immoral behavior. And then abominable idolatries. Worship of and devotion to false gods. Worship that often included drunkenness and, again, sexual immorality. In Asia Minor in the first century, apparently this was the dominant culture. This is how everybody lived. This is just what you did, but not for the Christian. 
This had been the story of their lives without Christ, but no longer. Because they had broken with sin. Sin was no longer their master. Jesus Christ was. And he called them to a new way of living. A different way of living. A way of living that was characterized by righteousness and sobriety and purity. And honoring others. And putting others first. It's very similar to the statement that Paul made to the Corinthian believers about their background, about their past spiritually before Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says these amazing words in verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is your story, church. Such were some of you. You came out of that life, out of that lifestyle, out of that sin. But Jesus plucked you out of that. Jesus opened your eyes so that you could see your sin and your need of a Savior. And he showed you a new path, a different way of living. Such were some of you. That's our story, beloved. Such were some of us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our story too. And that can be anyone's story who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ. You don't have to continue living enslaved to sin. Jesus Christ has come and He has died and He has risen again that you might be free from slavery to sin and you might become a follower of Jesus Christ. So it can be said of you, such were some of you, if by faith you trust in the Lord Jesus. There is no sin too great that is beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no sin so serious that is beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of His sacrifice. Now that these believers had come to Christ, their lives were to be characterized not by fulfilling their sinful lusts, but by their pursuit of the will of God. God's will, which includes sexual purity, which includes sobriety and self-control and self-denial and a pursuit of righteous living. Beloved, if we're going to shine as lights in the darkness, then we've got to live as lights. We've got to live as those who have been freed from sin. Nothing can blunt our witness before a watching world like sin. Unrepentant sin. Sin that isn't fought. Sin that isn't repented of. Sin that isn't grieved over. We'll always struggle with sin, believers, in this world until Jesus comes or until He calls us home. The question is, how goes the fight? Are you battling sin in your life? 
Live for God's will and not for human lusts. Thirdly, be ready to be misunderstood and maligned by unbelievers. Chapter or verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. In all this, in all of these sins that he's just chronicled here and listed, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So these followers of Jesus are now living new lives. They're no longer walking in the ways of the world. And this leaves many of their unbelieving friends and family and co-workers and neighbors scratching their heads in amazement. What is wrong with you, Christian? What is wrong with you? There's a world of pleasure to be explored out there. Why limit yourself? Why live such a, a, a life of, of self-denial? What a killjoy. The New American Standard Bible says they are surprised by our behavior. But this surprise is not the good kind of surprise. Surprise! It's the bad kind of surprise, right? It's the mystifying surprise. It's the surprise that takes offense It's the shock and dismay. They're shocked and dismayed that we as Christians now no longer participate in the excesses of their dissipation. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase, the excesses of their dissipation. The idea here is is of a pattern of reckless abandon to immorality, of giving themselves over to every desire and lust. It's a life of sin and sensuality. The picture, the word picture here is of a raging river of unrighteous living. And they're having fun in that river and they're saying, come on in, the water's fine. What's wrong with you? The result of this surprise and dismay is that they malign us, Peter says. They say all kinds of unkind things about us. You see, our refusal to participate in these sinful activities that we used to go right along with often leaves the unbeliever feeling judged. The fact that we don't participate means that we don't approve of their life, of their lifestyle, of their entire identity as a person. They feel judged. They feel condemned by us. What, do you think you're better than me? You don't accept me for who I am? For who God made me to be? Who died and made you the determiner of what's right and wrong? And they begin to malign. In the first century, Christians were accused of all kinds of terrible things. They were falsely accused of a variety of abominations that included orgiastic sex, incest, and cannibalism. 
Christians were falsely accused of sedition because they refused to worship the Roman gods and because they refused to worship the emperor. And because of all of this and more, Christians were accused of hating the human race. And that was commonly said of Christians. They are haters of humanity. So we're not the first generation of Christians to be accused of hate. You see, part and parcel to being a Christian is being misunderstood, is being maligned, is being mistreated and marginalized by society. And that's because unbelievers can't understand what we're all about. What motivates us? They can't understand it. They don't understand why we make the choices we do. Why we believe what we believe. Why we refuse to live as we once did. And we know the reason for that. It's not merely an intellectual failure to understand. We know that there's a spiritual battle at play here. There's a spiritual dimension 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Of course we're misunderstood. Of course we're maligned. Of course we're marginalized. They don't get it. They don't get us. They don't get Jesus. They don't get the gospel because Satan has blinded their eyes to it. And it will take a work of God through the Spirit of God and the Word of God to open those blind eyes and cause them to see what we have seen by God's grace. The comfort here is that Jesus has pronounced a blessing on all of his followers who are maligned for following him. In Matthew chapter 5 and 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beloved, this is nothing new. What we're experiencing in, in, in growing measure these days is nothing new to the church of Jesus Christ. It may be new to us. We may be experiencing a new era of feeling at odds with the culture around us. But it's not new. Peter has already said in 1 Peter 3.14, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Count yourself blessed of God. There is reward in heaven for you as there has been and will be for all believers who are faithful in the midst of suffering. Fourthly and finally, remember that Christ will vindicate our suffering for his name. Remember that Christ will vindicate all suffering experienced for his name. Verses five and six. Peter says, look, there... They're not going to understand you. They're going to malign you, verse 5, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to give account to Christ for every careless word, 
every maligning word, every act of persecution conducted against a believer will be judged by Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, who will judge the living and the dead, those alive at his coming and those who are dead at his coming. Both will stand before him and they will give an account and they will pay in full the debt they owe to God for their sin. Sin against God and sin against Christians. So God will judge and punish those who malign and persecute Christians. But verse 6 also says that God will give life and blessing to those who were maligned and persecuted as Christians. Peter says in verse 6, the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. He's not saying there that the gospel has been preached to those who are already dead. As though they were given a second chance after death. That's not what he's saying. What he's clearly saying is that the gospel was preached during their lifetimes. They believed the gospel. They trusted in Jesus Christ, became followers of Jesus Christ. And despite suffering that they experienced, they endured to the end, even to their death. They were, some of them, put to death for being Christians. And though they were put to death in the flesh, notice what he says, they were judged in the flesh as men, so they were put to death during their lifetimes for following Jesus, they are now living in the Spirit according to the will of God. Though these Christians may have been maligned and persecuted and even put to death, nevertheless God, through the gospel that they believe during their lifetimes, has given them eternal life through the Holy Spirit by the will of God. The promise here in verses 5 and 6 is that though the Christian in this life may experience harsh treatment and even death because of their faith, Jesus will vindicate them both by judging those who persecuted them and by giving life and eternal blessing and reward to those who are faithful to follow Jesus, even in suffering, even in death, if necessary. The point of this is that whatever sufferings we experience in this life, it pales in comparison to what God has for us, to the reward that awaits us, to the life eternal that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what Paul said in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time to be not worthy of comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Beloved, whatever suffering we experience now and then, it doesn't hold a candle to the glory that awaits us as followers of Jesus Christ and the reward that is to come. You see, as believers, that's what we live for. We live for the gospel promise. We don't live for today. We don't live for the moment. We don't live to satisfy self. In fact, we experience self-denial. We practice selflessness in order to exchange the fleeting and temporary reward that sin offers us for the eternal reward that God has promised to all those who follow him to the end. To all those who endure suffering, endure loss, endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, we have a great gospel hope secured by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
sufficient enough to give us hope, sufficient to endure every suffering and hardship that comes our way for the sake of the gospel. May the Lord make it so in our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you led the way on this. You endured suffering. Because of the promise of victory that you experienced in your resurrection and ascension where you ascended to the right hand of the Father and authorities, angels, evil angels, all powers were subjected to you. But the path to that glory was through the suffering of the cross. And you've left yourself as an example for us. That's our path too. All of us are called to suffer in one way and to one degree or another. In this world, we will experience tribulation. We will experience persecution. We will suffer for the sake of Jesus if we are a follower of Jesus. But after the suffering, there is great reward, immeasurable reward. And it's for that day we long. So we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on the hope that is in us, the hope of glory, the hope of Christ's return. And this hope purifies us, even as he is pure. This hope establishes us and strengthens us. This hope we celebrate around the Lord's table. Hope secured by Jesus himself. So Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your example of suffering and glory that you've called us to follow in. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.